Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to Crowcast Podcast. I'm Shane. Hey, I'm Ronnie. And these are the audio versions of the interviews we've had with our special guests on Crowcast. On this episode, we speak with Andy Kearns. Just myself uh, doing the little recap. Uh, it's so busy at the moment. It's amazing. We've got upcoming shows. So kind of Andy to spend some time with us. Yet again, somebody who inspired, especially growing up uh, in the 90s. Therapy were, were an inspiration, especially around our scene. We get into that in the episode, especially the album Trouble Gum. Uh, Shane was back this week. It was great. It was an amazing conversation and plenty of stories. So let's get into it. This is Crowcast Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Crow family, our special guest, frontman of legendary rock band therapy, is Mr. Andy Kens. Hello, everyone. Hey, hey Andy, how are you, Hello, sir? Hi, Shane. Hi, Ronnie. Hi, Crow hey. family. How are you all doing? We are very well, brother. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a real honor for us, dude. Um, cannot get enough of your band. It is. We've said this many times on Crowcast. We're going to get straight into this because I can't wait. But um, there's certain bands that we kind of grew up with in school. It was Wild Arts. It was obviously Nirvana and you guys, Therapy. And the mad thing was I was hearing uh, people in my form or year older jam into your songs and not, I didn't know it was Therapy. So I would hear your songs mm. by fellow friends jamming in the room and like, who's that? And then like Therapy and then it goes, oh yeah, Therapy are much better new because obviously they play it, uh, they, they were playing it like shit. But um Dude, your songs from like what 13 on 14? Yeah, yeah, wow. definitely around that time, honestly. And um, and that's why we were it was so cool to have you on because we've done jam nights, we've talked about it and Crowcast. That was kind of our pred pedigree of like getting into bands and stuff is going to jam nights. Um, I'm not sure if it was the same where you were from. Um, but the cool thing was every jam night featured a therapy track, yeah. like do you know what I mean? That was the you know, there'd be there'd be at least a pool of musicians who knew knew a song, and wow. guaranteed that would be played. So whether it was played by a different drummer every week or a different guitarist, yeah. but yeah. they would they would always be part of that. Especially like you know, growing up and leaving school and going into college, mm -hmm. it was just part of the playlist. Like you know, so that's amazing. Oh, thanks, guys. That's incredible. Yeah, like for me, um, obviously we talk about your album Trouble Game a lot, mm -hmm. but like. Scream Major. When you think about like songs that are the signature chords, if you look at like Nevermind, mm -hmm. um, smells like Teen Spirit. Those those could You for me, Scream Major was that. It was that distinctive chord progression. You knew exactly what song it is. Yeah. Did you did you know that dude when you were writing there? Well, we the the thing that became the signature, the kind of the da 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 da, -da stabs. That was the last thing that happened. Really? Because initially, initially the song was uh, it. It didn't have that at the start. It went and the rest of the song was as as you hear it. And we'd been in America. We were we really like a band called Helmet from the states. Um, we we went on to tour with them and stuff. But they used stops a lot, so they that was a part of their trick. 
and just before we went in to record the single, because we did that single before Trouble Gun, we did it on the short, sharp, shocky thing. We were rehearsing it, and um, we were sort of saying, and we still think it needs something else. And the producer Chris Sheldon, he agreed. He said, "Yeah, I mean the drum, the drum feels great, um, the chords are great, nice riff, good chorus, but it still needs something to set it up." And we just said, "Well, why, what would like what would Helmet do?" And we <laughs> said, "Well, we do stops." So we tried several different ones, and then we just the one that made the most impact was the one that made it to the record. Yeah, so that probably happened maybe about a month before we actually recorded the thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, because initially it was just chug tight chugging, so it was and then at the last minute we thought, well, that needs something extra, and we're so glad <laughs> that we did that because it's become like the signature part. It, it really is, dude. That is is so. Uh, um, you just hear it and you know it's that song straight away. Yeah, it was like one of the it was one of the songs as, as we were saying earlier. The the boys used to jam in our school constantly, like. Yeah, oh, that's right. I love hearing that. That's absolutely brilliant. I'm really chuffed for that. Thanks for telling us, folks. That's yeah, and then, it, and then it kind of rolled on because we left school, went into college. It would be yet again in jam nights. And mm. then I just remember like even early 2000s, mid 2000s, you'd be going into any pub, especially from where we're from in South Wales. Mm. Um, and it'd just be always on in a jukebox yeah. or a band would be playing and you kind of always knew if they were going to be a good pub band because mm. they would have a therapy song or a, or a, or a fucking wild art song or, mm. or something, you know what I mean? Something of that yeah. taste. Like, you know, it was like, oh, here we go. This is going to be a good night. Like, you know, oh, it's possibly one of the best first lines there is in a song with a face oh, like you. this. I won't break any heart. I mean, that is, that yeah. was my teenage years, dude. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that's what the song's about. And it's yeah. you know, also I I used to work in a factory as well, and I think the song that opening line was uh, there was a, whenever I we kind of got our first indie deal, I I used to work for a factory, and I went and handed in my notice, and uh, the foreman sort of went, so what are you going to do? And he and I went, well I'm 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 a musician, and I'm I'm actually going to we've signed a record deal, and he looked at me and he said. What do you do in the band? And I went, play the guitar and sing. He went, you don't look like a boy that would sing. <laughs> <laughs> Almost as if, you know, unless, unless you're like, um, I don't know, Robbie, you know, Tony Hadley from Spandau Bally yeah. or Dean Martin, you know, like swarthy and, and yeah. sexy and everything like that. It was almost like you're leaving this job and this money with that face. <laughs> uh, to go and do this, I, you know, it was almost like, "Are you mad?" And yeah. and I think that kind of that's where that line comes from because also, you know, the, the song's about growing up and about learning to deal with all your issues. And, and and most people at some point in time, no matter what looks they're born with, have that great sense of insecurity. And also, the way that we deal with things is a very Northern Irish thing. That there's also a little bit of humour in it as well. You know, it's. It's not. It's very dark, but at the same time, you can look at it as almost like kind of sardonic quote, and yeah, and it sets the song up nice. I think that that's a, I'm a sucker for good first lines in songs. Yeah, it's incredible because not only that, like the boys would say it in school as well. You know, but they would change it. They would they would like not not bullying, just banter, as you said, yeah. with a face like that. You won't break it. You know. They, they, oh, I, oh my god! Yeah, yeah. I've created a monster. I know. <laughs> Oh, it is incredible. 
it's incredible. Like there's so many amazing songs on that record. I know we jumped straight in there, but um, so w- when you were quitting your job, dude, so what age was that? Well, this was, uh, so this was 1990. So I was 24 where the band had been around for about a year. Yeah. And the other two lads in the band, they were 19. And I'd, I've known them from kind of the area that we live in is East Antrim. Right. And I never I knew the lads because they were always playing in punk bands and metal bands. But, you know, I'd been in a couple of bands and kind of, we just got practice with Michael and the original drummer Fife. And we'd put out a record ourselves and we got our first deal with, we got a worldwide deal. We got Touch and Go Records in America and Ouija that was through Rough Trade um, in the UK. And I just knew we were touring so many punk gigs and we were beginning to tour Europe. And I knew that I couldn't keep the job down. And, you know, I mean, it wasn't, I didn't exactly go into <laughs> any great wealth. You know, I was, I left, the, I left the job and because I didn't have time to do it. And then for ages, we were kind of living hand to mouth for a couple of years until we got a, a better deal from another record company. Right. But uh, it was the best thing I ever did. It was just a complete sense of freedom to just pursue what I'd wanted to do since I was a kid. Yeah. I love that. Do you find as well, and b- bouncing back and forth, do you, did you find it just as hard then to come over to like to the UK um, as it is now? Because we know a few bands from Northern Ireland and they're mm-hmm. incredible bands with incredible albums. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And we've only been over once to yourself, but we just know that a lot of bands find it harder to, to come over. Like, cause the finance, especially if they're not there, it can cost a lot of money. Was mm. it, was it easier then? Or is it, is it getting harder or? Uh, I think it was, it wasn't too bad. I mean, because we, we wanted to come over. We wanted to play, you know, one of the first gigs we played when, if we started coming was Newport TJ's, yes. you know, we went to Scotland, we went to Wales because that's what we'd wanted to do that. And we, 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 we grew up, like in bands like Fugazi and a lot of DIY punk bands. So we were incredibly good at looking after our money. You know, yeah. So if we, so we pressed up, we all got jobs, to pre, um, part-time jobs and funded our first seven-inch single. And any, if, you know, if we sold 10 copies of it and five needed a bass drum pedal, we would actually spend the money on the bass drum pedal. You know, we wouldn't waste it. But I suppose, I mean, I'm... Um, I'm quite a lot older than you lads. And I mean, Northern Ireland back in 1990 wasn't the place that it is now. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, it was a lot more difficult, the people's perception of you. So, you know, nowadays, like if you say you're from Northern Ireland, people of a certain age, it just means you're part of, you know, you're part of the island of Ireland. And whereas in those days, the political situation was still hairy. So there'd be situations when people heard our accent, it could lead to trouble. Uh, there was, you know, several times we were collared by the police because they heard our accent and, and taken in for questioning. Wow. Uh, you had to be careful in certain towns when you were loading out your gear. If anyone heard your accent, it might all kick off. But um, we just were so wanting to do it that it was worth any kind of hassle. And, you know, it's 95% of the time it was amazing. And we just wanted, I mean, we would leave, we would get in a van, we would rent the cheapest ferry. We would travel over to Scotland. We'd get a gig in Scotland. We'd come down. We'd do a couple of gigs in the Midlands, over to maybe Newport TJs, down to London, and we would be li- be living off like a fiver a day. And we would have a little network of people that we knew that were in college. So we'd phone up somebody and go that would live in Leeds that maybe were friends of ours in school and go, "We're playing in Manchester tonight. After the gig, can we stay in your floor in Leeds?" And they'd go, "Yeah, sure." So that's that's how we kind of kept and stuff. Mm. 
in a in a telephone box as well, isn't it? That's because um, we were because <laughs> we were um, no, it's not just that we were we were on the tail end of the nineties trying to promote our band, and uh-huh. everything was either done on your mum and dad's like phone bill, which you'd get a clout yeah. for, or um, yeah. or in the phone box you're trying to phone people oh, yeah. in a phone box, like you know, yeah. trying to to get. Oh, I didn't think ups. I didn't think you lads were that old. You see, so that's that's really good. You, that's rock and roll's been very kind to me. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. No, it's. <laughs> You know, I remember the phone box. I mean, so then you would have remembered. Uh, did you had you had you gone to Europe at this point, or was this still kind of UK? No, if if I'm honest, we were out to the gate. So we, like I said, we heard bands like like Shane said yourself, and mm. and and whether it be the Wild Arts, Nirvana, and stuff. We were pretty active from 14 to 16 years of age, and we just started yeah. kind of. Um, hiring buses and going to London and taking like 52 wow. people on a coach. And Brilliant. packing packing a pub out in London, but postering as well at the same time. Yeah. Um. So we'd all be in like each other's parents' house, basically yeah. putting them both in debt and and phoning these clubs up or promoters and blagging it. You know, hey, it's yeah. Steve from uh, from blah blah blah's agency yeah. or whatever. You put yeah. on a fake accent. I've got this band, um, and we turn up as school kids. And as long as we could yeah. get a bus to take us or somebody's dad, mm-hmm. um, we just managed to kind of get ahead of the game pretty pretty quick and savvy like you know so and then everything changed really quick like you know yeah. from a from putting a poster up we said this on crowcast to flicking a button now and you create an event worldwide like you know it's yeah. it's bonkers like you know it is but i mean it's you know it's what you do you do what you have to do don't you yeah, you know, yeah. I, I remember what you were saying about the posters i remember our first single we pressed up a thousand seven inch vinyl singles and we found out that we wanted a picture sleeve, but it was going to be, I think, a hundred pound cheaper if we folded the sleeves ourselves. <laughs> so I, I, I got, I got a thousand sheets of A4 card sent to my mother's house. Right, myself, Michael, and Fife. We turned up, I think, one o'clock in the afternoon with Pritt stick <laughs> and scissors, and we cut and folded one thousand copies of the picture sleeve so we could put the records in to save us. It might have only been fifty quid or something like that. <laughs> To save us money. <laughs> Never again. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's brilliant. So when when you were like obviously venturing over and TJs, we we grew up with TJs. We were fortunate enough uh, to play there in a legendary legendary place. Is that that how it works? You would come over, make an impact, pick up fans, and then go back home. Um, and then obviously yet again post out post out to the record labels and stuff because how did that record deal happen um, or was it just that song was so impact like well the the record deal that we got was um, we, as I said we pressed a thousand copies of a single and we did it ourselves off our own bat and then first of all myself and Michael the bass player we were big fans of Al Jorgensen from Ministry Mm-hmm. And he had a side project called The Revolting Cox. And they were playing in Glasgow and Edinburgh. And also on the bill was an amazing noise band uh, from London called Silverfish. So we got tickets to the concert. We phoned up the venues. They're both university venues. And they, we said that we're coming over from Ireland. And they said, yeah, you can buy tickets. So this is before online. So we had to phone the venue. They posted us tickets. And we brought over four copies of the single in our bag. And... We got to the first gig in Glasgow and we went up to the security guy at the side of the stage and literally said, 
We're a band from Northern Ireland called Therapy. We've come the whole way over to see um, Al Jorgensen and to see Silverfish. Any chance? And the guy actually went, yeah, sure, and let us backstage. <laughs> so, we, <laughs> so we went backstage where we witnessed two members of Revolt and Cox. We walked into the dressing room doing a, two enormous lines of speed off an ironing board. <laughs> we were like, you know, great. We walked into this just, and there was uh, two of them doing, and they looked up just as they looked up. They went, We're a bank from Northern Ireland called Therapy. Can we give you a single? Yeah, sure. And then next door, he wrapped on the door of the Silverfish and said, Look, we don't want to be a pain. Here's your single. And uh, we went down the front for the gig. And then the next night, we went to Edinburgh, and both bands went, You guys here again? <laughs> And we said, yeah, we can come over. So the Silverfish people, they were on a record label called Ouija, which is a part of Rough Trade Group. And and they said to us, like, you know, um, give us your details or whatever. We'll, we'll give this a listen. And we sort of thought that was that. And we got home on the Monday, and I think uh, we got a phone call about a week later from Ouija Records, from Gary Walker at Ouija. And he said, listen, it's Gary Walker from Ouija, and... Uh, Silverfish have given us your seven-inch single, and I really like it. Have you got any more material? I'd like to do an album. And we were like, really? And um, it's sort of we we said okay. So with we, we a bunch more songs, we gave them that. But the and then the other thing that really put it through the roof though was uh, our drummer in our band is called Neil Cooper, and he used to be in a band called The Beyond uh, in the nineties. Amazing, amazing band. He was he was only seventeen when he was in The Beyond. And a guy in the business said to us, there's a, a band called The Beyond going out in the UK. They're looking for a support. Would you be up for going? So a few weeks after, we went out, uh, did seven gigs in the UK and very small venues opening for The Beyond. And we brought a cut. We played in London and we had some copies of the single. And uh, I was totally green. I, I was asking for directions for BBC Radio 1 because the DJ John Peel was on it. Yeah. And I literally yeah. rocked up at Radio 1 at about two o'clock in the afternoon walked in and the concierge went, where are you going? And I went, uh, I'd like to speak to jump in. And he went, I don't think so. And I went, well, he's a, he's a DJ here. And he went, well, he'll not be, and he's not on to 10 o'clock tonight. And the girl at reception said, okay, well, leave it with me. Leave your seven and sing with me. If you, We said, we've come the whole way over from Belfast. And lo and behold, that was whatever, four days later, he played the, the thing on his show. And uh, that coincided with us talking to Ouija Records. And it just all went from there. And it was, we were just in the, you know, we just happened to be, we just, all the people that we liked, we gave the record to. That's, we didn't know any better. We do, when we went to London, we didn't go into any record company's offices. We didn't go to see any agents. We just kind of tried to give it to people that we liked. And it, it just happened to work for us. We were very fortunate. Wow, it's amazing. That's John incredible. Peel, man. How many, how many bands did he start their career? I know, and a really nice guy. He had us on for a couple of sessions afterwards, and uh, I, what I liked about him as well, I mean, the first time I met him, we didn't talk about music. We talked about football, and uh, and he talked about he'd be, he was a big supporter of Northern Irish music, and at the end of the conversation, and, oh, yeah, by the way, I was over in Belfast doing that Good Vibrations gig at the Oster Hall, but, you know, he's uh, sadly missed, but he, he gave us a first chance, and... This is what corresponds with us, you know, uh, meeting Silverfish and Revolting Cox and giving them that. But they were kind of talking about the band wanted to sign us. 
About two weeks later, John Peel played it. So all of a sudden, Ouija are going, oh, God, this, this band's great. The seven-inch single's being played. Yeah. So we, we gave them the album, and then they, they got us a deal with Touch and Go Records in America. So that all happened within a few months. It was like just because we got on a ferry and went to a show. That's, that's what it's wow. all about. Mm. That's what it's all about. That's incredible. So that's incredible. You were about 24, did you say? I was 24. Uh, Michael was 19. 19. He had just left school. He was waiting to go to uh, college. Man, you must have been buzzing. You must have been like, this is it, right? Oh, no, it was the best feeling ever. It's because it, it's what I wanted to do all my life. Um, and I suppose I, I always remember when I was a kid, Paul Weller from The Jam mm. was famous when he was 18. And when you're a kid, you tell yourself all this. So I kind of thought, if I'm not in a band and have a record deal by the time I'm 18, it's finished. Yeah. So, you know, I, I had a couple of little bands around the town I was in, and I had a couple of bands in Belfast. Nothing, never really went anywhere. And I, and I always, always jammed with people and played with them. And uh, whenever I got together with Fife and Michael, it was playing the kind of music that I was listening to, you know, a lot of noise rock, Sonic Youth, Tad, you know, uh, uh, very early, you know, kind of sub-pop music and stuff like that. Um, whenever whenever we met them, it was just, oh, let's do this, you know, whenever we can get gigs. But that was, uh, it was almost like because I wasn't trying as much that things began to really take shape. But yeah, I mean, the other two, it was really bizarre. They were, you know, they were both so young. And mm. like, you know, I was 24 and I suppose I was a bit, I mean, they called me Uncle Andy because I was like four and a half years older than him. And also, <laughs> and, and this is, I hated this. I was the only one old enough to drive the van. So I had to bloody drive that van everywhere. All the UK and Irish tours, I was driving because I was the only one old enough. The pair of them were in the back getting pitched. So I was like, you know, and then I would drive there and it would be, well, we haven't got anywhere to stay tonight. So it was someone's turn to sleep in the van. And it would be, well, if the peelers come along and ask us to move, we're pitched and underage. So you'd better sleep in the van tonight. <laughs> so they would go and kip in someone's floor and I'd be lying under a blanket or a sleeping bag in the back of this orange transit van. <laughs> An orange transit van. We we had a we had a we had a bright yellow transit van when we were kids. What kind of nick was it in? Was it like sort of falling to bits? Was it all right? To be honest, I think the engine was wrecked. But um, our bass player's father had it resprayed, so it looked a million dollars. But it was actually a bag of shit. It was a bag of shit, and um, (laughs) the back the back was semi cut out. When it It was like a window cut out the back. and literally there was one seat in the front and then someone had to climb on the amps and the fucking drums in the back. And yeah. you just be, yeah, that was the way we, we kind of went around. Like, That's you know? really dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. And I'm thinking like when we went to certain gigs back then, um, it'd be the case of, oh yeah, yeah, we're going down the road, you know, 25 miles, 30 miles. Yeah, yeah jump in, jump in. So everybody be in the back of the van traveling yeah. to the gig. Yeah, <laughs> well, but we had, we had the same score, mate, who was... Just a bit old, he was only a bit, but he drove first. He was the, the most interesting in driving, uh, not yeah. realizing he had your 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 job, like you know, designated yeah. driver. And uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so what I mean, did you have a name for the van? Did you did you, did you give it a name? But didn't he call it Betsy? Like yeah, a standard, was, like I'm sure it was Betsy, wasn't it? I think it was I Betsy, it was, it was almost named by his dad. It was like his dad uh, gave us the van, but it was still his dad's van. Um, 
and it was just fucking you never knew if you were going to get home it was just one of them like <laughs> a typical band story like you know a shuttery yeah. fucking shuttery van like you know yeah. noisy as hell so you yeah. you get home your throat's hurting from shouting in the van and the um, fumes the fumes coming in the back oh the fumes oh, are yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah similar you know similar stories because i mean that was the that was the beautiful thing about those times it was you had to get out and promote yourself you had to you know, we we didn't do so much the, the the sleeping around the houses and stuff because we were so yeah. young. But I know older bands would tell us that, and we would yeah. learn we would learn everything we could off them. Like you know, um, especially yeah. like you said, independently, do what you can. But we did it more on a smaller scale. I didn't really know how the the label side of stuff worked. Otherwise, we might have. We always joke about this, don't we, Shane? But I mean, you know, how many bands take fifty two seater coaches to London and, and forget the fucking phone a record label to come and watch them? Like you know, or <laughs> yeah. But we'd be like, this is wicked. We've just packed out the yeah. venue in London, like you know, and. Yeah. And and I don't know you you kind of hear the stories of right place right time and if you get up the up the smoke you know it'll all happen for mm. you and and blah 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 so we just thought we just had to create there and it'll just happen but yeah few phone calls from that phone box wouldn't have gone uh, gone astray like let me tell you yeah oh. <laughs> but yeah happy times I mean so when the band obviously you went and recorded the album then what was that like compared to recording back home did you did you go back home and record or did you record down in London or well our very first album was done um, in a place called Rattlestown and it, so we, the, the first single in the, the whole album was done in Northern Ireland it was a place called Rattlestown and the owner Mud Wallace God bless him he died uh, not so long ago it was it was the only residential studio in Northern Ireland, and it was famous for uh, the Northern Irish uh, World Cup song uh, when they got into the World Cup called "When Your Man Gets the Ball." It was recorded at Ramsland, and also um, various country and western acts. So you know, it's uh, it was in this place called Randallstown as well, which is one street. That's the size of the town, and it is. Uh, it was brilliant, though. Absolutely brilliant. It was a really, really good studio. It's, it's got long gone now. Mm. But that was our first experience because we'd, we'd done a demo tape in... Whenever we got the band together, we, we did a little rough demo tape in a guy's attic. We knew a sound engineer um, that was also in a, a sort of band. He lived in Belfast, and he let us use his, I think, attic for 40 quid or something like that. And then the second one was a place in a town called Lurgan. It was a bit more... I think it was used mostly for radio stuff, but they let us do a second demo in there. But the, the first album was all done in the proper studio. But I say proper, you know, but it's compared to what Northern Ireland had at the time, it was very, very state of the art, but it was still very uh, rough and ready. That's hmm. <laughs> awesome. When, when the record was kicking off, um, was it just like sudden? Was it like, because obviously you guys played everywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. Top of the Pops, I remember watching you on Top yeah. of the Pops along with with other bands and stuff like that. And yeah. was it just all like sudden, mate? Or was it just the roller coaster vibe that every every band talked about? It just starts happening and the next thing you know, you're looking back going, Jesus Christ, like, what just happened? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was kind of... The first album we did Baby Teeth on, on Ouija and the second one Pleasure Death. They were the two that we did before we signed to a major label. And we did an album called Nurse, Trouble Gun was fourth. But what happened was we, we went over with Baby Teeth and we played absolutely everywhere. I mean, the first time we went over, we went over with the Beyond 
that was when we just did a single out. We did seven gigs. So that was in front of 20, 25 people. But we made sure that we sold, we brought some shirts that would print it up and we, anyone that was interested, we'd give them our home phone numbers or our address and we'd, we'd correspond with them. But that, when Baby Teeth was out, um, that came out in 1991 and we had a John Peel session booked. So we booked a whole tour around that. And then we had, um, I think, another UK tour later in the year booked around that. But NME uh, gave it a really good review and Science Magazine gave it a good review. And it ended up going to number one on the indie charts for our first album. And I think that was because of John Peel and because of the music press. Yeah. So by the time we did the next album, which was January 92, that we found that more people were coming to the gigs. And, uh, and up until... You know, up until we released Trouble Gum, it was very steady because we toured nonstop and we just, we were we were decent to everyone that we met. You know what I mean? We, we, we didn't act like dickheads or anything like that. So everyone we met at a venue, we kept in touch with and we were polite and we were civil and, you know, we always made sure that we were really grateful for it. If there was only four people that turned up, we made sure that we still put the show on for those four people. Yeah. And it was that old school thing. It just, it was word of mouth and a, a bit of play on John Peel. I mean, before, I mean, we, we, we used to get quite a lot of coverage in punk fanzines. So it was that word of mouth, hardcore thing. We would get a lot of people turning up at shows. But it was, it was kind of quite steady. I mean, it, it seems bad. Now, you know, our album was number one on the indie charts, and the other two guys in the band were very, very young. Um, in fact, Michael had left college, but Fife, the drummer, was still at college. You know, he was, he was, still, he was still at college when the album was number one on the indie charts. <laughs> but it I know. So, like, literally, we would we would do a tour, do a John Peel session, but we'd base it around, you know, when he had time off college, and then we would go back and, uh, yeah, it was it was crazy, but we were so caught up in it. It's what we wanted to do that we just went with it, and you know, things like I remember you were saying about you know, the stand on people's floor thing that we did. We we did a gig in Cork one night, and I'll never forget this. I mean, we, 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 you met all types of people, but I remember there was a, a guy let us stay in his house, and he's, he lived with two or three bikers. And um, we sort of got back to that. And the, the thing about when you do that is you know that you're kind of, if that person that lives in that house wants to stay up in the six in the, six in the morning doing speed, you're kind of going to be staying up with them because there's no way you're going to sleep. <laughs> and one of the things I'll never forget was... They, they had no food in the house, and they said, would you like something to eat? And, and a girl that was living in the house brought out a loaf of bread and a tub of margarine and said, oh, I don't have any knives and forks. So she put her hand in the tub and buttered everyone's bread with her fingers and handed it around. And, of course, like, we were really polite, so we didn't want to say no. <laughs> we're, we're just sitting there eating these bits of, like, you know, God knows what's in it. And all around us were these bikers all out of their mind and speed. And we didn't sleep a wink. Was, uh, yeah. In fact, I think I think Michael, the bass player, the next day was was so knackered that he drank a bottle of cough medicine after sound check to try and get some sleep. <laughs> <laughs> he did actually, yeah, it was outside a gig in court, and then we couldn't wake him up before the gig. <laughs> <laughs> We eventually, we, we kept putting the stage time back until he kind of came around a bit. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Mm. But I mean, so would you would you say? I mean, Nurse was an incredible album, um, incredible album. But Trouble Gum, do is that when the, the the label came on board? The the big record label came on board. 
No, they came on board with Nurse. All right. And, and they kind of, they, they, they weren't really sure what kind of band we were because I used to have really long hair. And when I was the only one in the band that had really long hair. And when they signed us, I think, if I'm honest, I think they probably thought they might be getting a grunge band. Right. You know what I mean? But we were we were a mix of everything, you know, industrial you were, dude, punk, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of they we delivered this album Nurse and it kind of little bits of industrial in it, uh noise rock, you know, yeah. some kind of like dub elements and the guitars weren't particularly brutal or anything on it. Um, but with Trouble Gum, I've been listening to an awful lot of old uh, Northern Irish punk, like Stiff Little Fingers, The Undertones, and bringing it in with like the stuff that I love, like early Metallica. Mm. And um, we did the Scream Major song, and that was uh, in 1993. And I remember Chris Sheldon, the producer, saying, have you got any more songs like that? Because, you know, that was an outlier for us. It was a pop song. I mean, if you listen to stuff like Teeth Grinder or Meat Abstract that we did in the yes. early days, it was it was probably more like Killing Joke than it was, you know, like Nirvana or something. Yeah. So uh, we said, well, we've got this one called Die Laughing. Uh, we've got one called Nowhere, which is maybe a bit too poppy. So we played Chris all these songs. He went, well, they're, they're great. You know, if we're going to do this, let's let's make it that the theme to tie the album around, like a, tw- a 20th century version of, you know, Northern Irish punk rock, like Rudy, the Outcasts, Sifflet Fingers, the Undertones. And that was kind of the concept. And we sort of thought that we knew Scream Age had gone top 10, and we released a single afterwards called Opal Mantra, which went top and on number 13. So we kind of thought the Nurse album had gone to 38 in the charts or something, and it, it got us slightly bigger venues. And we, we were expecting that to happen with Trouble Gum, if we we're honest. Right. And um. In fact, we thought because it was maybe too poppy, we might lose some fans. Right. But that was the one that brought everybody on board all across the world. You know, that, that was the time that we, we'd already toured Europe a bit. But whenever that album came out, it was big all over Europe. It was big in uh, bits of North America, big in Canada, you know. And that's when we started touring really, really heavily with that one. And I think it's, I think the fact that the, the riffs were a lot more kind of uh, indebted to, punk and hard rock they weren't noise i mean a lot of our early riffs were very noisy they were like sonic youth this one was a lot more defined and i think obviously the choruses were really catchy and then it just that just went like that yeah so obviously what you knew up to that point when you signed when with a big label did things did you feel a change did you feel like we're a proper band now well, when we first signed to them, we sat down with them. This goes back to our, we can't stress enough, this DIY punk thing we had. Yeah. When we signed to them, we got quite a big deal for the time. And we kind of, I remember sitting at a table in uh, East, East Antrim, in Northern Ireland, the three of us and our manager. And we said, well, there's two, th- there's two ways this can go. We can spunk all this money on really top producers and making sure we fly everywhere in first class. And, you know, we don't really know if what, this kind of stuff we do, people will want to hear it in a few years' time. Or we can put all the money in the bank and pay ourselves a modest wage. And that was probably the best thing we ever did because we didn't fall into that rock star trap. Yeah. You know, we kind of thought it almost felt like we were being rewarded for what we were doing by having a 
it felt like a proper job. Does that make any sense? I don't yeah. want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sort of, totally. It felt like we're, 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 we're paying ourselves so much every week for what we do. No one's getting paid more than anybody else. And it's it's kind of rewarding. But it also meant then that we weren't overspending. Yeah. So you know, whenever whenever the trouble gum thing happened, that was great. But the first thing we thought of wasn't, oh, we're going to make more money. The first thing we thought of was, oh, my God, we can go to all these countries we've never been to before and make new friends. That's yeah, incredible. That's Considering, you know, the bands, when I think back to that time, how many bands were literally had that huge success, huge albums, mm. and, like you said, pissed that money away. Mm. It's easily done, I think. Uh, I mean, that is yeah, your age as well, dude. Do you know what I mean? You, you were young boys. Yeah. Wow. And it was, um, I think it was just, it was, I cannot thank enough the punk upbringing that we had. I mean, when yeah. we, I, I was older than the rest. And so I, I wasn't there for the first week of punk, but I remember yeah. kind of bands like Discharge and all that. And nobody ever came to Belfast because it, it's such a bad reputation, you know, with bombings and political uh, trouble. But punk and metal bands did, and they you would go and see punk or metal bands in places like the Warzone Collective at Gyros. These were places where you know, bring your own drink, all ages, uh, people looked after each other, vegetarian cafes, everyone. The whole mantra was like, "Don't be a dickhead." Yeah. And then you would meet bands there, and they would say, "Well, how did how did you manage to tour Europe?" And they go, "Well, we slept on this person's floor. We didn't spend this amount of money on petrol. We we we, we found out the cheapest petrol stations." And we took all that on board, and it's um, it's still with us to this day. All that Fugazi was another bunch of our heroes when we looked at the way Fugazi did things, and and also the I'll tell you what in Newport, like Simon and people like that uh, that used to put on the gigs at Newport, and John Socolo himself. But we met so many like-minded people there that that taught us a lot. You know, they taught us. You know, whenever you do a gig, you should do this. You should ask for this. You should look for that. You know. And they were a great help to us, and um, we just built up that. It's a mentality that is, honestly, to this day, we still have. Yeah, I can respect that. Yeah, I was going to say I can respect that, because that's that's what we grew up, and we were very lucky as well, see, Andy, because, like, we always knew musicians. Like like we said to you um, Mm. at the start, we'd go to jam nights, but there'd be musicians five years older, 10 years older, 15 years older. So they were all telling us the ups and downs you know some had maybe got somewhere in the 80s but they they caught it yeah. at the wrong time so as they would say grunge oh, yeah. came in oh grunge came in and wrecked it or um or a, a lot of them maybe had record deals but they weren't mm-hmm. as known because they were like the eighth band of that genre and nobody really remembered them um mm. so there was like a lot of good tips especially punk rock there was a lot of punk yeah. rockers in wales um yeah. and a lot of my friends now still today who worked for fanzines or they they were interviewing people or selling those magazines in the clubs for a pound um, and almost helping you with the networking as well, which I think is still vital today. And I think it's still, there's touches of it now. There's still touches of it about, like we in the rock scene now, we're happy to help anybody and we're also happy to take advice off anybody. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because I... I still think it's as hard now as it was then of you've got to be careful and you've got to back really, really clever. And um, we've always tried to implement that with our band now is always run it as a business, run it sensibly of how can we, how can we survive together as, as a unit, like, you know? So um, I I respect that. And I do think it is the punk rock 
punk rock background, like, you know, the um, the independent way. Um, a lot of those bands I didn't really grow up on, but my mates did. But I know, like, for us, it was some of the American bands, like your No Effects or your Lag Wagons. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they kind of more resonated, or Bad Religion, Pennywise. Um, yeah. And then they would go on and get their own labels and stuff like that, and then help other bands. And um, and it was kind of that that whole ethos, that 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 kind of that resonated more with me. Like, you know, it was more yeah. the, the third wave of punk. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> which was cool, man. So when, when everything was just rocking and rolling, which was brilliant, was, was there highlights for you and the guys? Any, any of your favourite countries that you visited? Uh... Yeah, there's little things. I mean, um, whenever Trouble Gun came out, it got a bit surreal because my, my favourite concert hall of all time it's the Ulster Hall in Belfast. It's in the city centre. It's like 2,800 capacity venue. Uh, and the only place bigger than it is the King's Hall. And not very many bands used to play the King's Hall. So whenever I was growing up, Metallica, Anthrax, the UK Subs of Dam, Susie and the Banshees, Jesus and Mary Chain, uh, the Smiths even, I saw them all in the Ulster Hall. And one of my dreams, I would always be... Do you know when you're young and you go to a gig, and even if you still go to a gig now, you go to the barrier and you look at the little glow of the red lights and you get all excited because you know that the band's going to come on. You see the little lights, the LED lights down. Well, I used to try and go to the front as often as possible. And the first, whenever Nurse was out, uh, we actually got to play the Ulster Hall for the first time. And I we went from playing the University of the Ulster Hall, and I was, oh, my God, I cannot believe it. And I made a point of when we arrived at Soundcheck, I made a point of jumping off the stage and walking to the barrier at the front and looking at my arms and just saying, oh, my God. And it took me right back to, like, seeing Metallic and stuff like that and just looking at the arms before anyone came on stage. And that was a highlight. And then we, we got to play that band, Helmet, that influenced Screamager. Page, the guitarist, an amazing guitar player, he played on a track on Trouble Gun. Um, so we got to tour with them. We uh, we did a track with Ozzy Osbourne, which was really surreal for uh, the Judgment Nights. Uh, no, not Judgment Night, for uh, a Nativity in Black soundtrack, which was a tribute to Ozzy. So we, we were flown to LA with the producer Ter- Terry Day. And I sort of thought, you know, uh, our, ba- our, our bass player, Michael McKeegan, is favorite, one of his favorite bands of all time in the top five for Sabbath, Sabbath, Venom, and, and a few other black metal bands. But somebody came into our dressing room with a gig in Copenhagen and said, uh, they want you to record a song with Ozzy Osbourne. And I thought, well, you know, yeah, Trouble Gun's big, but, you know, the bollocks, that's not that big. And we get sent, and this is how old it was, a fax. Do you remember those? <laughs> a fax from Sharon Osbourne going, uh, you, you would like, we would like you to do a version of uh, Iron Man with Ozzy. Yeah. So we had a day off. The next day we were flown to London to do the music with Chris Tangerides. So we... We ran through it at Soundcheck in Copenhagen. Then we went and recorded with Chris Tangaridas. And then I thought, well, Ozzy will add his vocal later, so we won't get to meet him. And the record company called and says, no, 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 you and Michael, we're going to fly you over to L.A. Uh, he's doing his vocals with a guy called Terry Date, you know, that did Soundgarden and Hunter. <laughs> and it was like, we walked in, we sort of walked into the studio, and, and Ozzy was at the booth singing Iron Man. And he, he sort of came out to say hello and shook our hands. And, and I went, all right, nice to meet you, I'm Andy. And he shook Michael's hand, and I looked over at Michael, and Michael was just going. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just going, my name's Ozzy. And Michael's just going, Michael. 
completely froze. And I was like nudging him, going, oh, yeah, I'm Marco. And then he was brilliant, actually. But that was a really good memory, especially like, you know, it was one of those things where afterwards, he stayed, he did a really funny thing. He did Iron Man, he did it in the second take. And we went up and just, just, oh my God, you did that in the second take. You went, I've only been bloody singing it for 24 years. <laughs> <laughs> and off, off he went. And then we were we had a night off in LA. So we kind of went went to the rainbow and we were going, did that just happen? <laughs> did wow. we just get flown over, get picked up at the airport, driven to a recording studio and see Ozzy Osbourne singing Iron Man to our backing track? And then leave, and we, uh, yeah, it did. <laughs> so that was incredible, you know, especially because if you knew the little the little villages and towns that we grew up in, people like us never get to sing songs of Ozzy Osbourne ever. So that was a real highlight. Oh, man, I, I'm blown away with that. That's incredible. I was, he was, and the fact that he, about two years later, he took us on tour with him in America for about seven gigs, and. Uh, that was whenever um, Jack and what's what's his daughter called? Uh, um, oh, fucking hell. Uh, you, Kelly. Kelly. Kelly Osborne, yeah. yeah. Jack and Kelly were on tour and they were like this size. They were like little kids. It was a summer tour, so they were off school. And that was, you know, so whenever the Osbournes came out a few years later, we were like, oh my God, like they're growing up. Huh? But, yeah, they were they were really good. And Sharon Osborne was great. Sharon Osborne got us that gig and then got us on the tour. But that one day, that that thing in LA was just incredible because it's, you know, it's there's nothing ever happened. Whenever we were growing up like that, things like that didn't happen to people from Northern Ireland. It, it just didn't. You know, there was there was the undertone, stiff little fingers, Gary Murr, but uh, nothing had happened in Northern Ireland for a long, long time. And then just the fact that we were doing this was incredible, and we were really, really so grateful that it happened. That's wow. unreal. That's so, when you were on tour then, what, what sort of size venues are you doing then? Well, whenever it was Trubbergum, uh, Trubbergum and the album after that, and Fur and Love, it was kind of Brixton Academy size venues. Right. So, like, that was it. Um, there was a couple of places like uh, Holland and stuff like that where they were bigger. You know, the venues were bigger than that. But that's, I mean, we never got to, to be, like, a, an arena rock band, but we got to, like, play to five and a half thousand. Yeah, yeah. We never went up to that eight ten thousand one, but that was like the it got that it's bricks and academy size venues everywhere, apart from North America. North North America was kind of like theaters still, but like right. all over Europe and stuff kind of thing. Awesome. There's a comment here from Pete Williams. If you can get that up, um, one of the most memorable times seeing therapy was Red in '94. Soundgarden were main support, the Chili Peppers, and pulled out moving therapy up to the main support. You guys went for it and played the set of the weekend, blowing chilies out the park. Even remember Leslie Rankin of Silverfish singing Lunacy Booth with you. Oh, yeah, I remember that well. Yeah, I do indeed. It was, um, well, Soundgarden were on the same record label as us. So we kind of, we knew probably before the press did that they weren't going to do it because I think right. Chris wasn't well or they had some problems. But we didn't think we'd get bumped up. We thought that we'd get somebody else into play, you know, because we were third from top anyway. So we thought, you know, we thought we'll, We'll end up, they'll get somebody else of like Soundgarden's caliber in. But it's good, there's good footage of it on, you know, because Troublegum had been out, it had gone gold, I think, the week before Reading. We'd been on top of the Pops, we'd been in the cover of Kerrang a couple of times. But what it meant, and it was good, is when we went on stage, it was dark. 
because like obviously Reading's at the last weekend in August. So by the time we went on stage, it was totally dark. So we got the big light. We our lighting guy got to do the full big light show and everything, which he wouldn't have got to do if we'd have been on about an hour and a half earlier. Yeah. So that was really good. Then it was, um, I mean, things like that. I've got a son. He's at college now, and you know. He, he doesn't like rock music. He kind of likes dance music. And he kind of knows I'm sort of in a band, but he's, he's no interest really in what I do. And uh, he was talking about him and his mates were thinking of going to Reading. Therapy <laughs> 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 Reading 94. <laughs> There's your dad. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's got to be proud of that. That's incredible. Yeah, but you know, no kids are like. <laughs> that's cool. That is cool. <laughs> I do know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we we were talking about this the other day. We didn't even recognise the last Reading bill. There was, I think, there was mm. like two or three, four bands maybe we knew, but you know, it wasn't like when mm. we used to go to Reading because we were quite mm. keen festival goers when we were younger, and there'd be mm. everybody there. Like you know, the whole Brit pop scene, or it was the whole rock scene, or the punk rock scene. It all. It just be there, like you know. That was the uh, yeah. the end of your festival calendar. When now it was like, mm. fuck, I, I don't even know that person's name. How would you pronounce that one? And it's like, it's, yeah. he's a rap, he's a rapper, dad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> like, oh man. And um, it's an incredible career, mate. And you've recently got the the greatest hits, which mm-hmm. is now available as well. Mm-hmm. Which that yeah. that's. That's when you know, you know, you've wrote enough albums and it's there. That, that's that's unbelievable. Like, oh, thank you. Yeah, that that came out. It got it was because one thing I must I must flag up into anyone that's out there that's in a band or is thinking to start a band. I was chatting to a friend of mine that's also in a band today about this, you know, because we stuck around for a long time. I knew we got you know, uh, trouble coming to Fern Love, but after that there was a kind of the wilderness years. <laughs> Whenever the music that you play is not fashionable, and it's difficult, but we what's that punk rock attitude, the DIY thing meant that because we had played, we had spent tours and tours and tours playing to twenty five people and sleeping on people's floors. So when we weren't playing Brixton Academy size venues, we were maybe playing to six hundred people, five hundred people. Mm-hmm. That wasn't any big deal because we were musicians making a living doing what we do. Yes, and. And we stuck at it. We didn't split up, and things came back around again. And we, we played to more people, and the record started doing better. Um, and the, uh, that again is just the background that we had because thought, well, this is what we want to do. This isn't something just we do for a certain part of our life. We've loved music all our lives, and as far as I'm concerned, I'll do it when I'm physically not able to do it anymore. It's you know that's what it's all about, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, and that the uh, thanks for putting up the the tile of the greatest hits too because that was you know whenever COVID hit that was our first album in quite a few years to go into the charts again and that was a, a big thanks to everyone out there that bought it and we had a book come out which is our biography so much of the thirty year plan by Simon Young that used to be the editor of Kerrang that came out and it was like you know we we were able to actually as a band be really proud of ourselves and go you know I mean we've we've been here for thirty years we've We've never taken the head staggers and buggered off. You know, yes, we've, we've had some really awful times, but all the good times outweigh that more than enough. It's been brilliant. And we still, I don't know about you guys, but like, I feel really, really blessed to do this thing that I do. And uh, yeah. I'm sure you guys feel the same way. You know what I mean? And myself and Michael, we were the, and, and Neil as well in the band, but you know, myself and Michael years ago made this, we, we got to a venue somewhere, it was freezing cold and half the gear wasn't working and somewhere in the continent. 
but we, we had a great gig and the next day we were having a coffee and we kind of looked at each other and said well we made a we actually made a pact we said that if we ever get to a venue and michael if you turn to me and go i'm not feeling this today or if i turn and say to you let's let's end the band there let's make that our last show and we made that vow and to this day we haven't had to do that you know if that if we have either any of us in the band ever gets to the point where we think i'm not feeling this not uh you know oh, i'm a bit worried about tonight's gig or i've got mm. a sore hand i'm not sure how it's going to go if you're not feeling the gig then it's taxi yeah i can get that i can absolutely get that especially like with everything that's happened over the last couple of years as well i mean we we've talked about it over the last few months of just going back to it and feeling that electricity and connecting with everybody and like yeah. you said having a drink with your friends because that's what the fans crow family therapy yeah. fans that's what they become they become your friends like especially the ones who travel yeah. spend all their money coming to empty among the gigs to see you um, yeah. and they, they even start knowing the stories better than you do lecturer yeah. I mean, it's, um, yeah. so i can completely i get that like you know i i was that felt recently i mean being back back on the live scene as well like you know especially with um the whole kind of stop um that everybody had to go through you know well the, the first gig we did and it, it relates to what you said was with your good selves it was at steelhouse well was we the had, first one that was the very first show we'd done since I mean the very the very last show we did we did the time uh, what's it called the forum in London mm -hmm. on the sixth of November two thousand nineteen, and the plan was the the greatest hits was going to come out in March, and yeah. the book was going to come out and we did a massive European tour planned, and then when COVID happened obviously that was all put on hold so the the, the next gig was Steelhouse which was this year in July. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I just, uh, I mean, you guys is set. I mean, the feeling of just, I mean, the, the, the crowd was amazing for that. I mean, and that was, me and Mike were starting to go and listen to that, you know, because it was just like, that was, that was just pure passion. And it was mm. just, you know, everyone was glad to be back in the live arena. And to be honest, we've only done three shows. We've done Steelhouse, we've done uh, Bloodstock, which was amazing. And we've done the Godiva Festival in, Dar in uh, Coventry, which is absolutely fantastic. But yeah, it was. Had you guys been playing? When was your first show for, during after COVID? We, was it download the pilot? It, or? it was download because we were we we were announced for the main stage of download a few years ago. I don't even know when now anymore. Um, <laughs> but whenever it was, um, that was kind of like oh amazing, and the momentum was with the band. So where you were gonna mm. release the thirty year, mm. we were actually just releasing our record and. The momentum then was uh, the the record charted, and then it was brilliant. Now we got mm -hmm. download, and then obviously same as you, everything kind of stops. Mm -hmm. um, so we didn't think we play download this year, and obviously the pilot came about, and mm -hmm. everything connected, and the team managed to pull it together with with Andy, and that was the first one back, which was just yeah. like I think in all the the years we've been playing, myself and Shane since school, um, mm -hmm. that was like shit that that's the nervous i've been because it was the case yeah. of yeah and it was good nerves it wasn't like oh my yeah. god but it was yeah. it was like wow um you could just feel it i can't explain it but you could genuinely just feel it it was like you could grab the the energy in the in the in the, yeah. in the tent like it was unbelievable it was almost yeah. like waves it in you of 
of excitement like and that was yeah. literally before we went on and then bang when we yeah. went on i think about halfway through the first song he always says it there's a part of our song now um and he let it and crowd started singing it back and it was like yeah. here we go and then you just smile on your face and enjoying it with your brothers like you know it was yeah. um yeah man and I, and then obviously it all led to Steelhouse because we have a great relationship with everybody up there the organizers mm-hmm. and the whole family who works through the festival and that was such an an on on off um and because Wales were running differently probably the same out That's in right, Belfast yeah. Wales was running differently to England we we felt as tense, which is peculiar for a band to say that normally. It's normally, mm. you know, oh, well, it's their, their, their festival, their business. But we felt as tense for them um, mm. because we just really wanted it to be on, like, you know. And then yeah. when, when obviously it happened and got to be on the same bill as, like I said, the bands we grew up with. And like Shane said, you know, yourselves, um, Wild Arts, is, it's just like, it's what you want. Like, you know, those, mm. those ticks to the list, as they say, like, you mm. know, so... It's been great being back. That's why I wanted to know what it was like because I've seen Bloodstock as well. I've seen footage of you with Bloodstock, yeah. And, yeah. and I've seen some other bands there. That looked that looked absolutely incredible. Bloodstock was amazing. The crowd were incredible. I mean, uh, Steelhouse was amazing. I loved it. I mean, I, I love playing on wheels in a way, but the crowd were great. And uh, the Bloodstock one was good. We did we did a weird one. We did one called the Godiva Festival in Coventry, and it was like super grass a indie band on first and the next day was Sister Sledge and it was in a big park and we kind of thought well hang on boys you know this might be a bit you know there might be small children crying when we take the stage here because we're the only band that's rock and heavy <laughs> on the bill there's 20,000 people there and we were on the main stage just before Supercross but it was incredible the audience were absolutely amazing and we haven't played Coventry in years and we took the stage that night and we got an amazing reception. So, you know, those three festivals, the only shows we've done, it's just absolutely, it's just brilliant. And um, I, I don't know about you guys, but you were saying about the nerves. We had that little bit of that before Steelhouse, mm. just because we weren't sure. No, we're not nervous about the crowd. We knew the crowd would be great. We're just nervous about ourselves, I suppose. Yeah. And when we hadn't really seen each other or anything like that, but we'd seen each other, I think, a week before to rehearse. But, you know, we hadn't been... Uh, we we realised that we formed the band in 1989 and we did our last gig in November the 6th, 2019, until Steelhouse, which is... But it was two, this year, wasn't it? It was 2021. So we'd never... The longest we'd ever gone a, with a, a gig in a whole time therapy has been together was probably seven weeks. Wow. So to go, to go that length of time without a gig was insane. Yeah, we were always gigging or always doing something with the band, and it was—it's just crazy. And you know, how, obviously, how, the, the, how do you, how did you feel that the gig went to Steelhouse? I mean, as the first one, was it was there moments in the set where you're like, "Oh shit, <laughs> it's just a little bit off," or was it all like like it riding a bike? I thought the crowd were great the whole way through it, and I think from our point of view, we snatched because we were playing for an hour and twenty minutes. And um, we hadn't actually played, you know, a gig, as I said, for over a year and a bit. <clears throat> and I went on stage and hit everything full pelt. <laughs> I was like, kind of, yeah, come on, come on. And three songs in, I was knackered, and I looked at the set list. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that so many times. So I put the foot off the gas a little bit, hoping nobody would notice, until I caught my breath, and then went back into yeah. it. Yeah. Um, uh, my my favorite one is, is is being the drummer is like 
fucking hell. I, we we joked about it in the end because there was no like rouse or nothing, but we would we would time the set. Yeah, brilliant, right? They're giving us forty five minutes here. Excellent, awesome. We come off stage. I was that for you, and some people, someone would say. You 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 were off in thirty minutes because of the fucking adrenaline. Every yeah, song yeah. was just pumping. And back then, Shane used to record it on his phone, so mm. he put a phone oh, yeah. on the stage, which was great because yeah. we we could critique it in the van then and yeah. and work out what to do and how to make it better. But fucking, I like think in the moment, oh, this is great and that's a great tempo. But it would yeah. literally be like, and then. <laughs> and you could also then I had to learn like he would say like you know it's the freezing or he, he didn't have the gaps in between to breathe so by the time breathe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, know, I know exactly I mean we, we had a song on an album called Hangs Out he called Hey Sit and You Rock and it was a real thrash metal kind of number and a drummer Neil that's you know his background is kind of progressive thrash metal <laughs> and if you've any song which is fast he just absolutely sinks his teeth into it yeah. And I was the same. We played that song live. I couldn't fit the words into the bar. <laughs> and it, it, sounded, it sounded amazing because it was just like so high energy. Yeah. But I was like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, oh man. I love it. And you've got, um, obviously, you've got a tour coming up now as well, the rescheduled yeah. tour. Yeah. Check that out. As you said, I you, must you... add that's that's the initial. There's more being added to that as we speak. I mean, the the festivals aren't even in that either. That's just the clubs, and um, there's more to be a lot more to be added to that. That's just the first batch. It's wow. just amazing because obviously I knew I was going to pull the graphic up, but um, it was I was smiling then when you said that obviously you and the guys is the longest you haven't played and stuff, and I knew I was pulling yeah. that tour up. And the fact you said yeah. you, you're adding more to it as well is just absolutely incredible. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I'm just kind of after having spoken to both of you, Jerry. Now I'm really going to have to pace myself. <laughs> <laughs> what, are, what, are you, what are you guys like? I mean, I mean, I know COVID aside, but what are you guys like on the road about getting colds and stuff like that? Normally, forget COVID, but you know, if you were normally, do you have a tendency? to we have this thing where one gets the lurgy, and then obviously oh. everybody gets it. Everyone. And, and you get through. Do you ever find it as well? Whenever you come home. It all hits you. Yes. Yeah. On yes. tour, you get through it. Like every single night, you get through it. You get through it. You get through it. You come home and think, "Oh, I've got four days off here," and those four days are spent on the couch. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's it's almost like you psychologically relax, and then yeah. your body just takes a little. I don't know. Yeah, but I, I'm the same dude. It does hit me quite hard when I come home. Um, yeah, and I, we we recently just came off the road with the Wild Arts, and literally, mm -hmm. I think the first two three days, the wife was LFT me constantly because she was just yeah. like, "Are you all right?" Because I was just, yeah. you're just there, no <laughs> energy. But I do think it's kind of adapting as well because band life mm. is bizarre. There's a lot of hanging around. There's a lot of like a lot of traveling. Um, yeah. But it's a weird sort of energy, and it's and then when you come home, it's almost like you you just have to kind of adapt and switch to that. And yeah. it's as if you all get of the that... jitters about nine. Do you, do you get the jitters about nine in the evening? When you normally, if you've got a few days home, you'd normally be on stage at nine. Yes. And at yeah. nine o'clock the day off, you're feeling a bit. Why am I feeling a bit strange? I'll tell you what. This is a brilliant story, and I really, really hope this is true. We did a tour in '94 of Germany, and the opening band was Terrorvision. You know, Terrorvision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And from Bradford, lovely lads. And we did like it was a, a big old long tour, and they were the opening band every night. 
And then they came at a New Year's Eve party and, and they came over to Dublin. I was living in Dublin at the time and all this. And they, they said the brilliant story about the drummer at the time, Shutty, who was quite a character anyway. And we were chatting about decompression. So, you know, when you come home from the tour, whether yeah. it's your wife or the, your housemates, whatever, you're a, you are a bit strange for the first couple of days, I find you guys. Aren't Definitely. So apparently, so apparently what Shutty did with, with his, his missus was he... He had a room in his house, a spare room, and he copied the interior of like a, a travel lodge. So he bought <laughs> he bought the same fittings, a TV, a little kettle, a trouser press, and when he came back from tour, he spent two days in that room before he he joined normal life. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's true. I oh. really hope it's true. That's what the lads in television told me. I really, really hope that's true because it's such an amazing story. <laughs> uh, you hate the travel lodge, new Ron. I, okay, <laughs> now, yeah, I, I've, I've grown there because. Obviously, you you get the family room sometimes as well to to save yeah. on the budget. Like you said, we we'd rather earn than than spend. Like you mm -hmm. know, and um, yeah, if you get that wrong travel lodge and you're right by like a door, that's the worst one. As as I've said to Shane, where your room is right next to a door that just keeps fucking opening constantly. Like you yeah, know, they, uh, they have those like um with the key card on them, don't they? And that's just yes, the one. Yeah. That, Everybody uses it's like sleeping yes. on the fucking M5 flight. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just yeah. had enough on one tour where he'll tell you I was absolutely going stir crazy. But uh, what my favorite thing is coming home and um, you're laughing or saying silly things that you would with your bandmates, yeah, um, and jokes and things, yeah, yeah, and nobody gets it, especially my wife. Or and I know the boys have the same trouble with it, the girlfriends or the wives. It's, it's mm. almost the case of your replicating your last two, three weeks, four weeks on the road, um, and you're trying it to a different audience that just don't get where you've just been. It's insane. So, yeah, we might have to, I might have to do the spare room out like a travel lodge. Yeah, that, that's, I think everyone should do that. Yeah, and shout when the kids close the bathroom door. <laughs> <laughs> So you're going to be working with um, Chris Sheldon again for album 16? We are, yes, yeah. We go in very soon. We have written, we wrote a whole bunch of songs and we, he's, we're, we're currently, he's going through them in a minute and he, he, we want to do a 10 track album. Right. And he's kind of going to say the 10 he likes, run it past us. We'll see if we agree or not. And he's already in the process. I mean, we've worked with Chris quite a few times and he's brilliant. So he's, he's really good at being objective at, I don't know how you guys feel about objective views, you know, with, with producers and stuff like that, but he's, he's really good at coming in and go, you're kind of doing that riff at the end six, seven times. It doesn't need to be six, seven times. Or, hey, that's a great chorus. Why don't you do it twice? Or things like, you know, you need, you need something a bit more for that bit or you can be cheesy and grow. And that's so what he's going to, what we're doing at the minute, we've just been rehearsing all the songs. Um, this week will be, he sent us edits that he's done at home. And we'll listen to them. And once we've decided, uh, we'll run through them all. And we'll, I think within three, four weeks, we'll probably be in the studio. But the studio's booked. But, you know, uh, we're all, we'll probably have a couple of rehearsals with him in the rehearsal room. And then that's it. So it's exciting. So the album will be done by, by November, by the end of November. Fantastic. What I, what I will say about you and look, like looking through your catalogue and stuff, you're, you mentioned it earlier, 
all your albums have definitely got a vibe, a sound. They all, all the songs on those albums, they are in context of that album. There's not, yeah, right. you know, nothing sticks out. They're all yeah. very within that bubble. Um, mm. So what's, what's this album sound like? What's... This is kind of, if, well, if you like Trouble Gum and you like the last album we did on Marshall Records, Cleave. Yeah. yeah. And we did an album in 2003 called High Anxiety. It's that, it's kind of like uh, melodic, um, big riffs, melodic choruses, and sort of that kind of thing that we do really well, where it's the lyrics are like slogans on a t-shirt. Yes. And and the, the drums are, I mean, the drums, it Neil's off the chain on this one as well. I mean, Neil Cooper is an incredible drummer, but he's, yeah. we've kind of given him free reign. So, so oh, he's, shit. <laughs> he's kind of like, he's... <laughs> he's um, Michael actually had to say to him the other day, you know, Neil, we're looking for a taste of Tom's, not all the Tom's. Because <laughs> he, he went full Neil Peart at one point. <laughs> and then we thought, you know what, we'll lean into it. Well, why clip his wings? So we've just gone for it. It's going to be, I'm really looking forward to this one, actually. Oh, fantastic. Can we you do can that? tell. You can tell that. You can tell you buzz for it, which is brilliant. That is. That's that's awesome. Looking forward I to am, seeing you guys you. back out on the road. To be honest, um, and you, you guys too as well. Yeah, because I know we all didn't really get a chance to catch up in Steelhouse, but I'm sure next year now, yeah. um, when when the album's done and and you're out on tour and stuff, we'll definitely get a chance to try and meet up with you. And yeah, um, you're always you're always very welcome. And if you're ever playing anywhere nearby, I'll nip down and see you guys as well. But you're always very welcome if you want to come over and say hello. It'd be great to catch uh, up. Brilliant. Thank you so much, man. Thanks for having us on as well. Uh, Andy, it's been an absolute blast. Thank you so Thank much, you. brother, for your time. Um, good luck with the album, bud. Good luck with the tour. Absolutely incredible. Get those tickets, people. Therapy are back. Incredible. Let's have a look at that poster again, Ron. It's incredible. Okay. Uh therapyquestionmark.co.uk um, and the whole back catalogue as well as the greatest hits is on there and exciting now that obviously Andy's got the, the brand new record on the on the way which I can't wait for that Fantastic, Andy thank you so much for your time buddy take care Thanks very much folks and uh, see you soon take care See you Thanks, soon Andy, take care man Bye. Thanks for listening to Crowcast Podcast don't forget, this episode is also available to watch on our YouTube channel. For up-to-date information on everything Crows, follow us on all our socials or visit our website, thosedamncrows.com. Tidy. Ta-da!